read from Matthew chapter 13. We're actually going to finish Matthew chapter 13 today. It's always a, an exciting thing to finish a chapter um, when you are working systematically through a large book like this um, and to know that we are making some, uh, some headway. Uh, sometime within the next uh, five to ten years, we will probably finish Matthew's gospel um, and be able to move on to uh, another book of the Bible. But this chapter has been very beneficial to me, and I hope it has been to you. But we, we shift gears kind of uh, majorly today in this chapter as we close it out and move into the next uh, sections of his this gospel. So Matthew chapter 13 Uh, Beginning in verse 53, Matthew picks up the narrative. He says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, He went away from there. And coming to His hometown, He taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would please bless the reading of Your Word. We ask that You would humble us under Your Word and that You would uh, allow us to understand it as it's taught. Lord, I pray that You would give me clarity of thought and speech as I seek to uh, exposit this text. Lord, I pray that You would give us ears to hear what You would say to us. Give us eyes to see the glory of Christ in His humanity and in His deity. Uh, Give us minds to understand what's written here and give us hearts to receive it with joy. And Lord, I pray that You would grant us repentance and faith as we see areas that we have fallen short and areas where uh, we have become familiar with Christ and and in so doing have become contemptuous toward Christ. Lord, bless this time. Pour out Your Spirit on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So, the title of the sermon is Familiarity Breeds Contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. Now, as I was reading, usually the way I begin my studies and preparation is just read the the, the passage of the text over and over and over again and and kind of pray through it and see what I can find in it first uh, before I go to any commentaries or or studies or or, um, see what anybody else has said. I try to see if I can find anything first and 
Um, the, one of the first things that came to me as I read this was that phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. And then as I began to study commentators, I found out this is the phrase that comes to everybody's mind when they study this passage. And so I thought, well, rather than try to be clever and come up with something new, I'll just stick with what everybody else has said and, um, and just know that we're in good company as we see the, the focus of what's happening here. If you spent very much time at all around more than two children at a time who are under the age of 12, you've noticed a, a sort of a system that works out amongst them as they deal with toys and the things that they play with. And, and I'll explain it. And you'll recognize it immediately. If child A has a toy, child B wants that toy. Once child B gets that toy... Child B no longer wants that toy. They want the toy child C has. Child A also wants the toy child C has. And once child A or B gets the toy that child C has, whoever gets it, they don't want it anymore. They want another toy that they don't have. And it's a vicious cycle. You've seen it. They, they don't know that they want a different toy. They just know what they have is not what they want. And what somebody else has is what they want. As soon as they get it, they no longer want it. And as soon as they see that somebody else has it, they want it. And the two principles at play there are, I always want the toy that I don't have. And the one that kind of factors into the study today, once I get the toy I want, I don't want it as much as I thought I did. Or I find out, I realize that. And it's an endless cycle. They want it. They get it. They no longer want it. They want something else. Around and around and around. We've all seen it. It's crazy. And we just laugh. Man, look at It's crazy how these kids are. They got it. And then they see that somebody else has a different toy. And they want it. And we laugh. And all kids are so funny. And of course, I'm sort of being facetious because we do the same things. We haven't changed as adults. We could just look at ourselves and notice that we do the same things. It's so very immature that a child would have something that exactly fulfills the purpose for which they intended it, and yet they still want something else to fulfill that same purpose just because they want something else. And the reason this is, and the reason we adults do this, we, we spend and we spend and we spend and we upgrade and we update and we modernize things that we already have. And the reason this principle is, is, is true is because of the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Once we get something that we thought we wanted, eventually we just realize we want something else. We, we just, for, for no reason other than the fact that we, we have this one, so we can't want it anymore, and we are made with wanters that constantly want something else. Once something becomes regular to us, we start to dislike it, and eventually we want something else. So a couple questions. How many of us treat our job with the same excitement as we did the first day that we worked that job, or or... We treat our boss with the same reverence and respect as we did during the interview process. I've been able to experience this quite often uh, lately. And so I just, I just know when you're in an interview and you need a job, I mean, you're, you're, you're on your game. Your shirt's tucked in. 
You're answering all the questions just right. I mean, just yes, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir, whatever. I mean, you're, you are, everything is on point. And then after a while, I've been at jobs for a while. After a while, it's just, you just kind of let things go. I've got the job. I'm, I'm familiar here. And so it kind of, it kind of comes, becomes boring to us and we kind of let ourselves go. How many of us men romance our wives the way that we did when we were dating? Very few of us do that because familiarity breeds contempt. Or how many of us got up this morning and grabbed our children up and cherished them like we did the day that they were born? Very few of us. Because they're just, they're here. Most of us got up this morning like this. Good grief, kid. You know? <laughs> familiarity breeds contempt. And this contempt works on a scale. On one end of the scale is just kind of boredom. And regularity, on the other end of the scale, is hatred. You, you don't like it. You want it away. This proclivity that we have is sinful, and it's wrong. It leads to covetousness. It leads to discontentment, theft, adultery, idolatry, all sorts of sins. This, When the Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, that, that's this. That is, I constantly want more. Because familiarity with the things I have is just not enough. I'm not going to be content. Paul says, uh, godliness with contentment is great gain. But we, we, we take so long if we ever achieve that point because familiarity with the things we have breeds contempt toward those things. But nothing can be worse or, or more scary than when familiarity with Jesus causes us to breed contempt toward Him or causes us to lose our passion, causes us to lose our zeal, causes us to dwindle in our love for Him. There's nothing more fearful than looking back in time at wholehearted zeal for Christ and then looking at your present state and seeing stagnation and apathy and wondering whether or not you have a stony ground heart that simply sprung up out of an emotional moment, an emotional experience and what you have or had is, is not real. Or maybe you have a thorny ground heart. You know, it, it began well, maybe, but it's being choked out by desires for all of the things in the world that you do not yet have. That, that would be a terrifying thing. Just like we read in Hebrews, speaking of those in, in the Exodus. You must hold fast your confidence to the end. You can be super excited about getting out of Egypt. Yay, we're out of Egypt. And then as soon as you get out, boy, it sure was nice sitting behind, beside those meat pots in Egypt. This is kind of getting old out here, Moses. And that's how they were. They did not hold fast their confidence. Today we, we turn back to Jesus and we return to rejection of Jesus and His ministry. And today we're going to see how he returns to his own people in his hometown and they did not receive him because familiarity with him has bred contempt. They, he was a regular. They knew him. He was no big deal. And that cost them their souls. So the first heading that I want to look at is, is just the context in verses 53 through 54a. The context. We read there, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. So we are 
concluding a large block of teaching. In Matthew's gospel, he includes five major discourses, long uh, uh, bulk teachings of Jesus. We've just concluded number three of those five major discourses in these parables of the kingdom. The parables of the kingdom come situated after much rejection and they lead straight back into more rejection. And this is a major theme in Matthew's gospel. It's interesting that a Jew writing predominantly to Jewish people would make a major theme the Jewish rejection of their Messiah. But it is. It's a major theme. The Jews rejected Him. He went to His own people and they rejected Him. That's a major theme. So we're coming out of the parables and we're seeing more rejection. Now when it says, when Matthew writes, He went away from there... It's more than likely Capernaum, his, his base of operations, his home city there beside the sea. He had got into a boat, taught some parables on the seashore. He had went back into, it says, the house. More than likely Peter's house where he was staying during his earthly ministry. He went away from there and coming to his hometown. His hometown was Nazareth. This is the place where his family lived. This is the place where he had grown up as a child all the way up till um, about the age of 30. Jesus lived in Nazareth, this small town. So he's left Capernaum and he's come back to his hometown. And it says that he taught them in their synagogue. Now we've already read in Matthew chapter 4 verse 24... He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And a very similar statement is made um, in chapter 9, verse 35. These are sort of general statements of the structure of Jesus' ministry. This is what he did. He went from town to town, going into their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and doing miracles into their synagogues. This was his custom. And I think it's important to note that Jesus did not despise the traditional settings of his people simply because it was traditional. They had always met in the synagogues to study God's word. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 15 verse 21, we read from for from ancient Generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The synagogal system was an ancient system. This idea of gathering local people in the local town to get together and study the Word of God was ancient. And when Jesus comes along, he doesn't say, well, man, we've always got together in the synagogues. Man, let's go. Let's do it at my house. Let's do it. He did not despise the traditions. He went straight to where the Word of God would or should be held in high regard. And he taught them in their synagogue. As a matter of fact, the New Testament church, this right here, this is based off the synagogue system. We get together, little churches in a town, that's based off the synagogue system. The early Christians were Jews, they just continued doing what they've always done, and this is what Jesus did. So picture this scene. This is setting ourselves in this context. Imagine this is you. Jesus has this ministry, his popularity is growing, but now he's gone back to his hometown amongst his hometown crowd with familiar faces, people who have known him 
For 30 years, they've known his family. He's gone back to his home church where everybody knew his name and he knew everybody. And he is now preaching and teaching them. That's the context. Second heading. As Jesus teaches, we see the reaction of the people to his teaching. In verse 54b, it says he was teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. Or he was teaching them to the result or to the end that they became astonished. They were blown away. They were amazed. They marveled at Jesus as he taught in their synagogue. Now this is not an uncommon reaction to Jesus. This is basically what he got everywhere he went. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read this. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So there, same word is used, astonished. They were amazed. They were captivated. They were marveled by His teaching. For the reason they were astonished was... Because he taught as one with authority and not as their scribes. The reason they were astonished was because of his authority, the the manner in which he taught. But that's not the case here as he goes back to his hometown. Why were they astonished here? Well, that leads us to the third heading. The reason for their reaction. The reason for their reaction beginning in verse 54c and going all the way through verse 66 or 56. They were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were astonished and said, I believe that there is a correlation between what between their reaction and what they said immediately following their reaction. And what they say will explain why they are astonished. So what do they say? Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is the first thing they say. And then they end it in verse 56 with where did where then did this man get all these things? This is kind of like Bookends. They begin and they end with, where did this man get these things? This wisdom and this stuff. This man and these things. And then in the middle they ask a bunch of questions. Describing this man. In these things, his wisdom and his mighty works, they have taken note of his traits of deity. And then when they say, this man... And they describe, they ask these rhetorical questions. They are taking note of his humanity. Where did this man get these things? We are astonished because this man has these things. So, let's look at his traits of deity. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Wisdom and works. Wisdom and works. Words of wisdom, teaching, and works. Deeds, miracles, signs and wonders. Jesus has come teaching and 
performing wonders. This is the exact same thing that we see with Moses and Aaron. They said, let my people go. No, plague. Let my people go. Plague. Let my people go. Plague. The same thing we see with Elijah and Elisha. Prophets speaking the word of God accompanied by great signs and wonders. The same thing we see throughout the ministry of Jesus. Word and deed. The same thing we see throughout the ministry of the apostles. Word and deed or the signs of an apostle were accompanying the words that they taught. It's always the same pattern anytime this happens, or almost every time this happens in Scripture. Now, what does it mean by His, his wisdom? What is His wisdom? What's His words? And in all of these cases, Moses and Aaron, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and the apostles, these times when men of God came to speak the Word of God, this wisdom, their teachings, their word, was to be accepted as the very words of God. What Moses and Aaron said to Pharaoh, this is God's word. Yahweh has said, let my people go. When Jesus taught in his earthly ministry, his word was to be accepted as the word of God. So, the word of God comes. And the word of God demands utmost attention and respect. The Word of God demands submission. The Word of God demands obedience. He's come with this wisdom. All of these things, attention, submission, obedience, are required by Jesus' wisdom. But how are the people able to verify that this is a man of God? How do we know that you're from God? Well, that's where the works come in. The wonders come in to validate the Word. So in these cases... Moses and Aaron, Elijah and Elisha, Christ, the apostles. The reason I'm making reference to those time periods, those are the time periods in the Bible when miraculous signs and wonders were prevalent. It's not like in the Bible, there's a miracle on every page. It's certain time periods. And the works, the miracles, the signs and the wonders were prominent and they accompanied these special times of God's Word coming from God's man to the people. So the deeds validated the decrees, the works, verified the word. That's why after Elijah raised from the dead the son of the widow of Zarephath, she said in 1 Kings 17, 24, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. I see your miracle. Now I believe what you've been saying. And that's the pattern. So the people of Nazareth are astonished at Jesus because not only has he spoke with wisdom from God, but he has performed great and mighty works verifying the words that he's spoken. Wisdom from God verified by the works. And since he's spoken the words of God, those people are required to pay attention, to submit, and obey his teachings. So they have noticed his traits of deity, and that requires a hometown crowd of familiar faces to pay attention, submit, and obey Him. But that's not all that astonished them because they also noticed His traits of humanity. They noticed He had a father. Is not this the carpenter's son? They knew His earthly father, Joseph. He was the carpenter. Is not His... There's not this, the carpenter's son. Now, most commentators believe that by this point, Joseph had already died, but they knew him. He was the carpenter. And as a matter of fact, in Mark's gospel, he says, they say, is this not the carpenter? 
Because more than likely, if Joseph was a carpenter, Jesus would have trained right up under Joseph as a carpenter. And until he was 30 years old, Jesus was the carpenter, or at least the helper to the carpenter in town. So they knew him. They did not say, is this not the rabbi's son trained to be a rabbi? Is this not the the, the son raised in the, the home of a Levite trained in the law? Is this not the scribe's son? No, he was a carpenter. A hard-working, blue-collar man. So they knew he had a father. He had a mother. Is this not his mother? Is not his mother called Mary? She was still alive. Maybe even there in the synagogue that day. Is not his mother called Mary? Mary, where are you at? Is this not your boy here? He had siblings. Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are not all his sisters with us? Yes, Mary and Joseph went on to have more children after the birth of Jesus. These would be considered half-siblings to us. These people didn't know that. Um, Judas, also known as Jude, the author of the book of Jude. James, the author of the book of James. These are his siblings, his sisters, his brothers were there, maybe even in the synagogue that day. In John chapter 7, verse 5, we find out that Jesus' brothers didn't actually believe in Him. It's not until later in the book of Acts that we find out that His family became disciples. But before that, they didn't believe. They were all there, and the people are saying, we know this guy. They're all rhetorical questions. The answer is yes. Is not this the carpenter's son? Yes. Is this not his mother called Mary? Yes. Yes. Is not his brothers these men and is not his sisters or are not his sisters with us? The answers are all yes. It's rhetorical. Why ask the questions then if they know the answers? What they're doing is they're saying, why or where did this man get these things? Why should we submit to him? They're pointing out the fact that Jesus to them is nothing special. They're saying he's common, he's just like us, he's got a father. And a mother and brothers and sisters. He's a man just like us. He's worked a job just like us. He built that table. He worked on that bench. He's done. There's nothing special about this man. Where did this man get all these things? This wisdom from heaven. These works from heaven. So in other words, here comes this man teaching in his hometown church with wisdom from God. His fame has spread as He has done mighty works from God, proving His wisdom. If He is truly a prophet, or at best, the Messiah, then His hometown crowd must bow down and worship Him. The problem is, and this is what's astonishing to them, He's a regular person like us. Why would we submit to Him? He has no formal teaching. He wasn't trained by the rabbis. He didn't go to school. He's a carpenter. He comes with no pomp. He's not superior to me. Why would anyone pay attention to, submit to, or obey a person who's just like them? They couldn't deny His wisdom. They couldn't deny His works. The only conclusion is He's either demonic or He's delusional. He's either a liar or a lunatic because if He is Lord, we all better get on our faces and do what He says. That's why they were astonished. Then we look at heading number four. 
the result of the people's reaction. Verse 57a, and they took offense at him. Offense. Literally, they were caused to stumble at him. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And then Paul exegeting that text in Romans chapter 9 in reference to the unbelief of the Jews says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. And this is Paul's translation. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Paul says the stone is a hymn. You must believe in Him. That stone of stumbling is with a capital S. The rock of offense is with a capital R and it is a person with a capital P. So what Isaiah prophesied and then Paul explains later, we are watching happen before our very eyes in the Gospel of Matthew. God has put forth a man. He has a father. An earthly father, and he has a mother, he has brothers, and he has sisters. He has a job in a small town where everybody knows his name. But at the exact same time, God has put forth his son, born under the law, born from a virgin under the law. No one's ever spoke like him. No one's ever performed deeds with power like him. And this astonishes the people. The God-man has stepped into his hometown. And his hometown church is now confronted with deity cloaked in humanity and the result is either we bow down to him or we reject him. And so they choose to stumble, to be offended, to reject, to walk away. What are they offended at? The person of Jesus. Just just him. 100% God, 100% man, teaching with wisdom from God, displaying the power of God, and that is offensive. (coughs) Jesus is the rock of offense. So then we see Jesus' response to their rejection in verse 57b through 58. They took offense at Him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The first thing that we see in Jesus' response is a response in words. Jesus gives this sort of an old proverb. A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and, and in his own household. A prophet, Jesus says, is not without honor. Any man called by God, commissioned by God to speak the Word of God is to be honored, not because of who he is or what he wears or how many people follow him, but because of the office God has given. And this is, this is not uh, self-serving. This is anybody. Anybody who stands behind this lectern and proclaims the Word of God 
because they've been ordained by God to do that, they deserve honor and respect. But we know that this is not often the case. Even men who start off with honor, after a while we become comfortable and they become regular. And honor is usually lost for the man. And sooner or later we just lose honor for the office as well and it all goes down the tubes. And we can't be that way. Jesus says a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And that's what we're seeing happen here. And then he responds... In actions, Jesus withholds His mighty works. Man, He could have kept doing miracles and gathered in many, thousands. Who knows? This, this is a means by which God used to gather in His people signs and wonders. He could have kept on doing it to gather in the multitudes, but He says, no. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. King Jesus does not bend over backwards to entertain people into the kingdom. Now, in the Bible, miracles accompany great faith. And in the Bible, miracles accompany no faith. But in the Bible, miracles do not accompany obstinate, hard-hearted rebellion just to say, impress me. Impress me and I'll believe. He does not do that. And so he leaves them in their unbelief. So let's apply this text. First, let's take comfort in Christ. Take comfort in Christ. If we can read this account of Jesus, the God-man, going to his hometown, teaching with heavenly wisdom validating His teaching with a a reputation of signs and wonders all over the the countryside, and His closest acquaintances still refuse to believe, then we can expect the exact same thing to happen to us with our close acquaintances and remember where we must go, Jesus has already been there. You're not going to be in a situation where someone doesn't believe you that Jesus has not already experienced. He's king of the universe and they did not respect Him. They did not honor Him. And that's because, as a subheading, familiarity breeds contempt. These people had a problem with Jesus because they knew who He was. He's just like us. Where did this man get these teachings and these these mighty works, this wisdom, this stuff? He's just like us. When you go to share the gospel with someone or explain just a biblical worldview to those of your own family or close friends or co-workers who know you best, who are the most comfortable with you, you will most certainly be confronted with unbelief. It will be the hardest thing that you do. That's because they knew you, they've seen you at your best and at your worst, and they usually will have very little respect for you as a leader or a spiritual advisor. Who are you to speak into my life? Second subheading, contempt is to be expected because the gospel requires submission. All of Scripture requires submission. All of Jesus' teaching, as He taught, it required repentance and faith. It demanded them to repent and obey what He taught. Any honest look at the biblical gospel or any life issue 
from the perspective that we hold the total sufficiency of Scripture for every aspect of life is going to confront most people head on, even most Christians. And the traditionally held ways of thinking by Christians are going to be confronted and hit head on by what the Bible actually teaches. When the Bible comes out, it demands attention. It requires submission and it requires obedience. And people don't like that. And people definitely don't like that coming from someone they know or have very little respect for. So even if it's biblical truth, you read a verse. You just read a verse. Read the verse. People are going to reject it, hate it, and deny it or say, well, that's just your interpretation simply because if they obey, they feel like they're submitting to you and they don't want to do that because they don't see you as a spiritual advisor, even if it's the Word of God. And so we need to be ready for that, not to exalt ourselves, but to remember Christ has been there. We can expect it and to put our trust in His Word. And then third subheading under taking comfort in Christ is if the gospel you proclaim does not produce an offense to some, it's false. You got the wrong one. More often than not, Jesus is rejected by those to whom He preaches. And it's because the message He taught and the message of the Bible reduces man to nothing and exalts God as everything. And that is offensive to people. If the gospel you preach or share tells people to discover their purpose or find their value or fit themselves into the story, no one's going to be offended by that. That's what everybody wants. If you tell somebody, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, even a lost person will say, that's great. I also love me and I also have a wonderful plan for my life. It's great to meet a God who's just like me. But if you preach a gospel that says, without Christ... You're dead in trespasses and sins, unable to help yourself or please God. And actually, every action you make in that state is offending Him more and more. They're going to take offense to that. And then you come in with the good news. There's only one way that you can be lifted out from under this curse, and that is by trusting in the God-man who hung naked on a cross and came back from the dead. They will be offended. The gospel is offensive. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Amen. The message of the cross, the gospel, is folly, foolishness, moronic, idiotic. It's stupid. It's the most ridiculous story any person could ever contrive if you're lost. But if you're a believer... You know, number one, no person invented that story because no person would ever invent a story that reduces man and exalts God. And number two, if you're a believer, that story is the power of God unto life for you. So familiarity breeds contempt. The gospel requires submission. The biblical gospel is offensive. All of these things are true. But we can take comfort in knowing Christ has met that offense or met that uh, rejection before us. He's been there, and He can sympathize with us. Secondly, we must take caution from the Nazarenes. These people 
made no attempt to deny that Jesus had wisdom and that He did mighty works. But they were tripped up by the commonalities that they had. He's a man just like us. Surely in their case we see that familiarity breeds contempt. So the question that we need to ask at this point for us is how might familiarity breed contempt in us? And then once we see it, we ask God to forgive us and to give us grace and avoid these pitfalls. Now the applications are numerous to this. But I'm just going to focus on one main heading and then several subheadings in how can we, in familiarity with Christ, be, uh, how can that breed contempt in us? And then I ask the question, how is it that we commune with the risen Christ? The answer is, through the means of grace God has given us. So I'm going to walk through the means of grace. Well, let's just ask ourselves, has familiarity with the means of grace bred contempt in us for the means of grace and thereby contempt for Christ? If that's confusing, then just follow. Number one. Corporate worship is a means of grace God has given to us by which we commune with His body. And no doubt, most of us, four years ago, we were so excited that this church was starting. We were so excited to be out on our own. We loved it. We loved being a part of it. As a matter of fact, most of us had to come and set up and tear down every week. We were so excited. If you're a new believer, you were excited to just meet other people who were believers and be a part of Christian fellowship. But now, it becomes or has become familiar. And you know the people. You have your seat. You know the routine. Sermons are hit or miss or based on their helpfulness. The duties of preparing for the Lord's Day. The duties of training your children to, to listen in the worship service and, and, and pay attention are difficult. And so, what happens? Familiarity breeds contempt. Lord's Day worship becomes expendable. It's just something you can do without. If members of our church family are out, well, it's no big deal. We'll see them next week. It's no big deal. If you have the opportunity to be out, well, it's no big deal. It's just church, right? It's, it's every week. I'm familiar with this. If the sermon isn't helpful, well, that's no big deal. I won't pray for my pastor or encourage him or help him uh, know how to do it better. I'll just go home this week and listen to the six preachers I actually do like to listen to for my spiritual growth. Our brothers and sisters around the world are gathering for corporate worship at the risk of their lives and we venture out at the risk of discomfort or stay home at the cost of our spiritual growth because familiarity with corporate worship has bred contempt. It's just something you do. Second means of grace. I put two together. The sacraments. Christ has given us two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, to continue until He comes. The first time you get to do it as a believer or as a new member of the church, it's so exciting. I'm finally unbarred from the table. I'm finally baptized. We invite friends and family. Everybody wants to see it. I've got a friend who's being baptized. I'm going to take pictures. I love it. But then after a while, these things become familiar. I can skip out if I need to. This church actually does the Lord's Supper more often than my last church. And since my last church is actually my standard for doing the Lord's Supper, as long as I do it at this church about as many times as I did it at my last church, then I'm still good with God. Someone goes to get baptized. Well, I'm going to go home for lunch. You guys have fun. 
Familiarity with these things breeds contempt, and Christ's commands are set aside for personal preferences. Because they just we just get used to it. We're all this way. Third one. Christian fellowship is a means of grace. Fellowshipping with other believers. Christian fellowship is exciting. When you get to meet new people and get to know them, find out there are other believers, other people who read the books you read and study the things you study and like the people you like, but then you get to know them and you hear their stories over and over, you're around their children, you become comfortable with them and you assume, well, I'll just see you next week or, or sometime. And familiarity breeds contempt and so we begin to pick and choose which families we like and don't like. We invite over the same family for supper every month rather than getting to know new people and we miss out on the sanctifying grace of God in hanging out with people who aren't exactly like us. God will use those times to mold us into the image of Christ and say, hey, did you know what? Everybody's not like you. And you're not actually perfect. Number four, private study of God's Word. I bet every one of us could hold up a Bible and remember when we first got that Bible... And it was crisp and it was clean and the pages were shiny. And I'm going to take it home and I'm going to read it. I'm going to put it back in the box. I'm going to take it out and read it every day and put it back in the box. Because I love my new ESV Bible or my NASB Bible or whatever it is. We're so excited to have a new Bible. And maybe you read through Genesis and Exodus or maybe you read through John or, or something. And after a while you taper off. It's like, yeah, that's my Bible. And now it stays on the counter or on the table or in the car all week. Because familiarity has bred contempt. Now the Bible is not as fun as it used to. You used to be excited to study the Bible and grow in your knowledge of God's Word, to actually commune with God, to hear Him speak through His Word. But now it's actually kind of difficult to carve out time for God. Carve out time for God as if your heart would continue to beat if He didn't keep it beating. And we have to carve out time for His Word. Because familiarity breeds contempt. And fifth, private prayer. No doubt for all of us, there have been moments when we have fallen on our faces and called out to God for something miraculous to happen. In an emergency, in a time of trial or great crisis, or in a time of repentance and faith. But now our prayers are short, lifeless, heartless. We don't mean them. We can say a word, we say words and... Two minutes later, what did you pray? I have no idea. There's very little power in your prayers because familiarity breeds contempt. These are all ways that we commune with the risen Christ. And if we become so familiar with these things that we become contemptuous towards them, whether just bored or whether we actually despise them, we are missing out on communion with Jesus. And if this happens, we set these things aside for other things. We are no better than the Nazarenes who said, Who is this man? Where did he get all these things? They set him aside because to them, he was just another man doing tricks. And in turn, he set them aside at the cost of their souls. He said, You are in unbelief, and I will leave you in unbelief. The sin of unbelief began in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve did not believe what God had said concerning their fate. And because of Adam's sin, all mankind is born in a state of sin and misery after them. But then, 
something amazing happens in, later on in Genesis. Abraham, or Abram, believed. And it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed. So now God commands us all to repent and believe in Christ. Even if you are a Christian, God says repent and believe. Today, if you hear His voice, and He says, you have grown contemptuous towards those means of grace, repent and believe. Do not harden your heart. Repent and believe. Call out to Him and say, God, give me grace. I've sinned. I, I, didn't, I just drifted this way because this is the way we drift. I repent. Grant me repentance. Help me to turn. Give me these things anew and afresh regularly. Ask God for the grace to lay hold of Christ in fresh ways every single day because our nature is the opposite. Our nature is to become familiar and to grow in contempt. So I'll close with this. And we're going to stand and sing a song. And the song that we're singing is a prayer. But I'll close with this passage from John chapter 1. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray.